for no explanation of what's happening, why he has to do this. But he obediently goes and marries a woman called Goma. She goes on to have three children. The first one we can say definitely is Hosea's, the other two, the language is unclear whether they're definitely his. God instructs Hosea what to call the children. The first is called Jezreel. Jezreel had been the site of a massacre by the current king's father. There he had killed Ahab and his followers. God will call Jehu's line to account and visit on them what they brought on Ahab. The second child is called No Mercy. God pronounces that he will not have mercy on the northern kingdom, though he will have mercy on the southern kingdom, Judah. The third child is called Not My People, and it almost sounds like a judicial divorce. You are not my people, I am not your God. It's the opposite of what God normally says to his people. It sounds like God has finished with Israel. And God here is using marriage and the names of the children to teach Israel something. What he's teaching them is that they are guilty of spiritual adultery. God is their covenant husband. They are his covenant wife, and yet we read, they've been fooling around with the Baals. They haven't abandoned God, so to speak, but they've been worshipping Baal on the side. Now that might seem a little bit strange to you or me. If you believed in God, then why would you worship Baal? Well, what we read here is really they believe that they could get things from Baal. Fertile crops, fertile women. The Baal specialised in fertility and weather. And the Israelites would pray and worship them on the side when they wanted things in those categories. And that's what Goma is there for. She does things on the side. She went after lovers who could get her things. Bread and wool, flax and drink, we read in 2.5. <coughs> Even though she was well provided for by Hosea, she seeks her sustenance elsewhere. And in doing so, she reflects what Israel are doing. Israel have done the same thing. And in chapter 2, God declares that he will punish Israel. He will take back the grain. He will remove the wine. He will uncover Israel and end her festivals. He will destroy her vines and her fig trees that she believed that she got from worshipping Baal. God will remove those things so that she will return to him. And at the end of chapter 2, he promises that he will take her back. He speaks in very romantic language. He will woo her. He will take her to those nostalgic places. For Caroline and myself, it would be Pizza Margarita in Lancaster, where we had our first date. Or maybe the Crookaloon. These are in Lancashire, I'm sorry. Uh, The Crookaloon, where I proposed. For Israel, he says that he will take them back to the wilderness where he first called them to be his people. We were reading around those events this morning. He will take her back and they will remain together forever, a truly happily ever after. Where there was no mercy, mercy will be shown. Where they were called not my people, now they will be called my people. And in chapter 3, Hosea again is to reflect that in his own marriage. Hosea buys back his wife from the men that she has sold herself to, and she will remain with him. And there is the promise at the end of the chapter that despite Israel's upcoming exile, they will return to the Lord and have a new David as their king. And that ends really the narrative part of the book, the story bit. 
The rest of the book is really, if you imagine this like a DVD with a sort of love story, this is really the behind-the-scenes commentary uh, that follows, giving extra information on, on really what's going on in Israel. So point two, the behind-the-scenes commentary. In the chapters that follow, right to the end, we discover that the things that he's been showing us very briefly in 1 to 3 really are true, and he hammers them home throughout the book. So first we see that Israel really are unfaithful. So Hosea 4, 1 and 2. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Or Hosea 4, 12 and 13. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrificed on the tops of mountains, and burnt offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. God speaks about it very personally as well. Hosea 6 verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's another name for Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. It seems to be there for a little while, and then it vanishes. Or Hosea 13, verse 2. And now they sin more and more, and they make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kill calves. And then finally, Hosea 7, 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. They're chasing after the other nations for their help rather than going to God. So they really have been unfaithful. And the second thing we really see in this section is that God really will punish them. So Hosea 4, verse 9. It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. God is not going to show partiality. He's going to repay them. Hosea 7 verse 12. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Or Hosea 8 verse 7, a famous phrase that's passed into English. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They really are going to be punished for all the things that they've done. God is going to come and deal with them. He's going to send them into exile. And yet, we also find that God loves them with an unbreakable love and will bring them back. Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God cares for his people, even though they've been unfaithful. And he promises to bring them home. Hosea 11, 11. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And finally, Hosea 14, verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, 
They shall flourish like the corn. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wind, sorry, the wine of Lebanon. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? God promising to bring them home, for them to flourish, for them to grow. It's a bit more complicated than it sounds, though. Because whilst Judah, the southern kingdom, came back after their exile in Babylon, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Israel, never did. It sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? Because it seems that God really is promising to bring them home. And he is. But amazingly, the New Testament sees these things fulfilled in Christ. He is the ender of the exile for all God's people, Israel included. Hosea is quoted as Jesus re-enters the promised land from his stay with Joseph and Mary. This is from Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's actually a quote from Hosea. All the Old Testament quotes in that section of Matthew are to do with the return from the exile. And in Christ, the one true Israelite, Israel, returned. And now people of all nations, including the lost tribes, wherever they are, may enter in Christ. And it means that those truths can now be applied to us. <coughs> despite our unfaithfulness, despite our spiritual adultery, God loves us. And will take us back. And the reason that he can do that is because Christ has taken our punishment. Christ took all that that was in between, that middle section, all that pain and hurt and punishment. Even though we sowed the wind, Christ reaps the whirlwind for us. And because of Christ, God will take us back. We can be betrothed to Christ with an everlasting betrothal. One that culminates in that great wedding feast at the end of time that we saw in Revelation a couple of weeks ago. As faith gives way to sight and betrothal gives way to happily ever after. It's really an amazing story, isn't it, if you think about it? But we'd be amiss if we missed the big question that Hosea poses for us as God's people throughout the book. There is that happy ending, but there's things for us to consider as well. So finally... Am I being faithful? Am I being faithful? That's a massive theme all the way through the book. And for us, it's something to consider both spiritually and physically. I mean, many prophets speak about a return from exile, but only Hosea majors on this theme of spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. And really, as we read the book, that's the thing that's hammered home as you read it through. That's the question that we're left with. Are we guilty of what Israel were guilty of? Are we trusting in God for some things in our life? But then in other things, we're trusting something else. What do I mean? Well, we get, don't we, that we're supposed to trust God for our spiritual lives. But so often we default into other things for our, uh, sorry, yeah, for our physical lives. We might trust in our pension pot. For our retirement. We might trust in our family to be our rock in a difficult time. We might trust in the doctors for our health. Now it's not wrong to have pensions or family or doctors. But what we must do is see behind them 
see through them the sovereign God working all things for our good, bringing us those things. You see, the tragedy in part for Israel is that God was actually being very generous with them. Like I said, this was an affluent time. But the praise didn't go to God, it went to Baal. Perhaps one of the most tragic lines in the whole book is Hosea 2 verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. God was providing for her, but she fooled herself into thinking that it was Baal. And not only that, she then used the good things that God had given her to praise and worship Baal. The good things that were from God and for God, she sadly twisted to be from Baal and for Baal. And how often can that be true of us? We look at things and think, look where my job has got me. We look at things like, where has my hard work got me in life? Look at where my fastidious law-keeping has got me, all the blessing. But it was God graciously giving those things all the way through. And they were being given that we might praise God with them. Houses, families, bonuses, position, honour. given by God, for God. And when we treat them as man-made and use them to build our own mini-kingdoms, then we misuse them. We use them from ourselves, for ourselves, rather than from God, for God. So we must heed Hosea's message and not run after other lovers, other things that give us what God offers. But there's also an important message here for us to, for those of us who are married. There's a sense in which married people all do what Hosea did. They have a living parable of God and his people. That's how Paul speaks about it in the New Testament, uh, as we act out, uh, as we live out our relationships within our marriages. So for those of us who are married, we need to ask the question, are we reflecting the covenant love and faithfulness of God in our marriages? Do we show that love and forgiveness that God shows to his people, to one another? Do we show that faithfulness to one another despite our own sinfulness? Are we modelling that relationship with each other, with a world looking on? And all of us, whether married or not, we pray for our married couples to do that. In one sense, we live out a parable of God's love for his people. It's a high calling, it's a hard task. And in that sense, there's no such thing as a minor marriage, either. It's a high calling, and it has its challenges, just as singleness has its challenges as well. But all of us should be praying for one another in that. So let's pray that God would give us major help to live out these truths, <coughs> to be faithful to him spiritually, and to be faithful to one another uh, physically, as we live out uh, the message of this book day by day. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the book of Hosea. But more, Father, thank you for your covenant love to your people. Father, thank you for the way that you love us, that you care for us, that you forgive us, and you take us back. Father, pray that we remember that at our worst moments. Father, help us to remember that you know who we are, and that, Father, you love us anyway. And, Father, you've taken us to be your covenant bride. 
to help us look forward to that great day when faith will turn into sight and that happily ever after finally happens. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.